I want to tell you a story. It was the fall of 2004. I was a Duke undergrad, a senior. I majored in religion, and I minored in being really busy on campus. On a weekday at lunch, I walked into the Bryan Center basement. I was there for the yearly diversity luncheon. With other undergrads, faculty, and staff, we celebrated the beautiful diversity of the Duke family. A hundred of us sat around large round tables. We all ate the same catered lunch, and we did an exercise on identity. The exercise went like this. Stand up if you identify as, and then a word to describe people. The leader went through a dizzying array of identities and categories, white, black, Latino, Hispanic, Asian, Pacific Islander, Indian, Native American, biracial, multiracial, mixed race, first generation, second generation, man, woman, transgender, gay, straight, lesbian, bisexual, intersexual, non-sexual. We stood and sat and stood and sat and observed other people claiming identities all over the room. Then, the leader began to read categories of social class. Stand if you identify as lower class. People stood and sat. Stand if you identify as lower middle class. Middle class. Upper middle class. People stood and sat for each one. Then the leader said, stand up if you identify as upper class. And I stood up. I looked around the room more than 100 Duke students, faculty, and staff, and I felt that jolting, vulnerable, tear-spring-to-your-eyes realization that I was the only one standing up. My stomach churned, and despite all the good work I'd done on campus, I was sure that I would be forever remembered in the annals of Duke University history as that rich girl who threw up at the diversity luncheon. <laughs> Thankfully, I didn't lose my lunch. I sat down as quick as I could. My face was on fire. The leader moved on. Apparently, the beautiful diversity of the Duke community didn't include any upper-class people. Now, since we were sitting in an elite university, my guess is there were at least a few other people who should have been standing. So I learned a powerful lesson. If you have money, you probably don't like to talk about it. Unfortunately, Jesus does. Jesus talks about money a lot. I read every one of those passages this week, every time that Jesus talks to us about money. And it became clear that Jesus looks at money like a competing God. In the eyes of Jesus, money fills his people with desires that can never be met. Money possesses us with our possessions, owns us with what we own. But Jesus wants to set us free. Jesus wants to set us free from desires that will never be filled, from money that wants to own us. And out of all the moments when Jesus talks about money, best known is our passage for today. I checked in this week with a few people who I thought could relate to the rich young ruler in this story. What comes to mind when you think about the camel and the eye of the needle passage, I said, just to see what some people's first reactions might be. It struck me that nobody said, what camel passage? 
Even in a world that's not very fluent in the Bible, people know this one. They know it, and they don't like it. The people I talked to felt defensive and judged. Some even felt shame, that insidiously destructive emotion that leaves us isolated and frozen. It says we haven't just done something wrong, but there is something wrong with us. I think some of you might know what I'm talking about. Take a deep breath. Don't run away. Come back to Jesus. Jesus is not here to judge you or shame you. We are all in this together. We are all caught, all struggling in a money world that leaves us feeling ashamed. Whether it's because we have money or because we don't have money, we all desperately need Jesus. And if we can hear him without being frozen by shame, I believe Jesus has a plan to set us free. So let's look at how Jesus arrived at the eye of the needle. First, a wealthy man comes up to Jesus. He falls on his knees and he says, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He thinks he's done everything right. But Jesus sees a man possessed. Possessed by his possessions. Owned by what he owns. But Jesus does not shame him. Jesus wants to set him free. He looks at this man with love, and then he acts with healing power to set the man free. In our world, money is power. Money is freedom. And this is true for all of us, whether you would have stood up for lower class, middle class, upper class, whether you have money or you don't. Money is power. Money is your ticket out. Money is the key to the easy life. Money keeps danger away. Money gives the goodness of life. That's the rules of our world. It's the way it works, the game we all play. But in the eyes of Jesus, money is like an occupying army, marching through the streets of our hearts and imaginations. And Jesus is our liberator. Jesus is here to set us free. The rich man knelt before Jesus and he asked what he could do to inherit eternal life. He wants to get eternal life as a gift. Like a kid at Christmas asking Santa for a shiny new bike. But that's not how the kingdom works. It's not a present for being good. Instead, if we want to belong in the kingdom, we have to start living that way now. I'm not great at sports metaphors. My main year of team sports was my five-year-old Sunrise Soccer League. I was a happy little athlete. I loved practicing gymnastics in my little corner of the soccer field until one fateful day, the last day of my illustrious soccer career. I did a cartwheel, and I got stung on the hand with a, by a bee, and I ran to my mom, and I said, I don't like soccer. I have zero legitimacy with sports metaphors, but I do know from a long career as a competitive gymnast that the way you practice shapes the way you perform. That's how it is with the kingdom. 
If you want to belong in the kingdom of God, you have to start living that way now. you got to get started practicing. We practice kingdom living all our lives so that when we get there, we've got toned muscles, faithful reflexes, and a good mind for the game. Jesus is teaching us how to start living in the way of the kingdom now. Jesus is teaching us new rules for the game and how to practice every day. So with love, Jesus says to the man kneeling before him, you lack one thing. Get up, go, sell everything you own, give the money to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. And then come, follow me. If we pay attention to Jesus, he's giving the rich young man four steps to living in the way of the kingdom now. Four ways to practice a Jesus-shaped life. Step one, get up. In all of Jesus' healings in the book of Mark, Jesus always tells the person to get up. Rise to your feet. Come to full health. At the word of Jesus, we can be healed from the sickness of our possessions, from the poisoning of our money. If you're here today longing for freedom, Jesus has a word for you. Get up. Rise up. Your struggle is not too heavy for Jesus to bear. Your sin is not too ugly for Jesus to forgive. In his death and resurrection, Jesus has already conquered death and all the weapons of death in this world. So the death-dealing power of money has been conquered once and for all. With its dying breaths, money might try to seduce us, to blind us to the beauty of God's kingdom. But with just one word from the Lord of love, we're free. We're free. With one word from the Lord of love, we are free. It feels impossible. But impossible is possible for God. And y'all, that's just step one. Step two, sell what you own. I met with a financial planner recently who said if we can only get enough money, if we can only stockpile enough in our little piece of the pie, we'll be safe, happy, and fulfilled. Our world says keep it all and then get your money to make money and get more. Jesus says sell. Jesus is flipping this world upside down. A couple I know is considering making a big change in their lives. It's a faithful one, but it's risky. From financial security to the unknown. My husband is having an especially hard time, the wife told me. You know, with the provider mentality and all that. When Jesus says, sell what you own, he knows what he's doing. He knows this cuts against our value and our self-worth for men in particular. Our culture says to be a man, you have to provide. Then a man who doesn't provide is less of a man. 
Here with our second step, Jesus is starting to remake our identities. You have staked your identity on something precious. It's true. We all have. You have. There is something in you, something that you have, something that you can create, something that you can earn or make. And Jesus calls you to sell that precious thing. Maybe you're like this rich young ruler and what's precious to you is wealth. But more likely, it's not money itself, but what money can buy. It's importance, recognition, influence, significance. What's precious to you? Maybe you've staked your identity not on money at all, but on the things you can get. Hardwood floors, a house that looks like Pottery Barn, a power suit, travel, seeing the world. Maybe you've staked your identity on knowledge. You've always been the smartest person in the room, the hardest working. Where do you find your value? Where do your fingers cling tightly to what you've made, what you've earned, what you've worked for, what you deserve? Imagine Jesus clearly, lovingly calling you to open your hands and give it all away. It feels impossible. But our impossible is possible for God. And that's step two. Step three, give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Here, Jesus is giving us a way to make things right. Not just to set us free, to heal our broken identities, but to heal this whole broken world. Jesus says, join me in tearing this world apart. This is where it gets fun. I worked in fundraising for several years, and one of the most common ideas in fundraising is that the rich have a blessing to give the poor. The fundraiser sells them this feel-good message. Have you heard this before? You've been so blessed by God, and now you get to generously pass this blessing along. Only one problem. It's wrong. Or at least it's not how Jesus talks about it. Remember how shocked the disciples are when Jesus says it will be hard for the rich person to get into the kingdom? They're so shocked they make him say it two times. They are sure that wealth is a blessing from God. They are sure that the wealthy will be the first ones into the kingdom. But Jesus says the only way for the rich to get into the kingdom is by redistributing their wealth. What Jesus imagines is not a simple one-to-one, I sell, you get money situation. He is setting the whole world free. He's freeing rich people from the destructive power of wealth. And he's setting poor people free from the destructive power of poverty. There have been two moments in my life when I was sure that Jesus was telling me to sell it all. Or at least all that I had and give it to others in my community. Both times, someone older and wiser advised me 
to save for the future, to be prudent and responsible with my money, rather than following my passion and just giving it all away. I'm not sure if they were wrong. It's been nice to have some money there at times. We've taken some faithful risks, and there have been a few moments when we were able to be really generous. Even though I know there's wisdom in the advice I got, I do wonder what my life would be like if someone had said, yes, do it, sell it all. I hope that once in my life, I'll feel the tug of the Spirit and someone will say, yes, take Jesus at his word, do it. And I pray that when someone comes to me and asks me what I think they should do, I'll have the courage to say the same. Step three is to join Jesus in remaking the world. From grab as much as you can to give it all away. Or as Clarence Jordan said, don't give until it hurts. Give until it's gone. Sell it all. It feels impossible, but our impossible is possible for God. And that's step three. Step four, follow me. At the word of Jesus, we are set free, free to follow Jesus all the way to the kingdom. But in God's infinite wisdom, God honors our decisions. God gives us the freedom to say yes. And so there's also the possibility of saying no. The rich young ruler walks away from Jesus. He hears a word of freedom and he turns away utterly possessed. The disciples rightly name what's at stake here. Total freedom from this destructive demon money? That's impossible. What's impossible for humans is possible with God. Sometimes it might be like trying to get a camel through the eye of a needle but once that camel is through, we have no choice but to say that God did it. If we ever choose to do something crazy, like sell all and give it to our neighbors, we know that's God's power on earth. There is no other way to make that kind of costly discipleship decision than by the power of the Holy Spirit. Our only chance for freedom our only chance for freedom, y'all, is to throw ourselves wholly into the arms of Jesus and trust that Jesus will lead us through. God can and will take us to impossible places. So step one, rise up. Let the healing power of Jesus set you free. Step two, sell all that you own. Whatever is precious, whatever you've staked your identity on, let it go. Step three, give it to the poor. Not because you've got so much to give, but because Jesus says this is the only way to the kingdom for you. And then step four, follow. Follow Jesus into the fullness of life. Follow Jesus into freedom and love. Maybe you could do something crazy. Maybe Duke Chapel could do something crazy. I don't know. It seems impossible. But God's been doing impossible things 
for thousands of years. Why not here? Jesus looks at us and says, For humans, it's impossible, but not for God. For God, all things are possible. Let's pray. Would you pray with me? God of all impossible things, our Lord of love, at your word, the world is set free. We are set free, set right, made beautiful and lovely. We are precious. Teach us to hold to what's precious and release what destroys. We want to follow you, Lord. We want to follow you all the way into the kingdom. Amen.